where my friend Jay Jane and I chat with college students and early career professionals about their journeys to civic tech, their passions, their projects, and why people should consider utilizing technology in the civic space. You're only hearing from me again. However, this is not because you will not hear from me at all in the second part of our discussion with our friend Vinesh Kanan, because I did get a chance to get a word in here and there. Maybe it could be for the sake of consistency, or maybe we just didn't plan any thematic banter because we're busy trying to find jobs. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, this episode is long enough without me prattling on here. So I will leave you with our chat with Vinesh Kanan. The next thing we wanted to talk to you about was your civic tech work. Now, personally, growing up in rural Wisconsin, and as someone who was good with numbers, conventional wisdom was that you either went into teaching, you went into business or finance, or you became an actuary. The only exposure you get to public service is by volunteering with local organizations such as a church, volunteering at school, or perhaps working for the village or the county in some capacity. So obviously, these two spheres of comparatively high technical computer-oriented work and public interest projects did not mix at all, at least from my experiences from when I was a kid. So when I came to Illinois Tech in 2016, I realized I wanted to positively impact society, and I knew that I did not want to go down the route of working at a fan company or even a fintech company that try to do that. And obviously, from what for today, the work that these companies do tend to negatively impact society, or at least they can negatively impact society. However, even after a few years of studies that passed, the path to that goal seemed foggy. Now, I got my first tech experience through an iPro course that worked with the American Red Cross and eventually became a paid research opportunity. However, I was and still admittedly am disillusioned about how the funding for civic tech projects can dry up at the whim of some finicky uh, trustees or investors. So when I had the opportunity to talk to you, Vinesh, about your work at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and when you later presented your work back in 2019, that was the first time I told myself, yeah, I can work in an organization like the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the government and apply what I've learned here in school to serve the public interest. Uh, It was kind of my own little career light bulb moment. So with that in mind, uh, could you take some time to discuss your work at the Bureau of Labor Statistics? Sure. Yeah, through Coding It Forward and the Washington Center, I worked as a government contractor for three months at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I worked with a department called the Occupational and Employment Statistics on occupation classification. So there are these these things called SOC codes, standard occupational classification codes. They're six-digit codes that help the government organize the different kinds of occupations that it recognizes. 
And in order to produce statistics that are about the labor market, the BLS has the responsibility of surveying employers and trying to classify their employees into these SOC codes. And when they have that information, they can produce statistics about how common are certain occupations across different industries, different geographic areas, how much these jobs pay, what kind of training they need. These are massively important statistics that are are used by policymakers, by companies to set their wages. They're used by researchers, by journalists, even by teachers and like high school counselors to give advice to students about what they want to do professionally after secondary school. So it was really exciting to be part of the team and to work with so many economists, statisticians, and research psychologists who are passionate about the mission of the BLS to provide the highest quality data about labor and occupations. I specifically worked on machine learning models for auto coding. Over the last few years, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has started using machine learning models to automate some of the process of assigning these six-digit codes. And then whatever the machine learning model cannot resolve, trained human experts do the labeling. And so this was sort of like a classic like civic tech project to work on in a lot of areas because we have this like high-level automation process and we're trying to control the cost and the quality of time and resources that go into coding as well as the final quality of the statistics. Then we're also trying to improve the model if there's things that we can do automatically and precisely we would like to. And then we're also deeply concerned about bias, fairness, and a poor model quality. What happens if there are certain kinds of occupations or certain areas within the labor market that our model is confidently wrong about that can jeopardize these really important statistics? And so I worked on a number of of things like designing new features and uh, improving the model. Uh, I actually got to open source some of that work, worked on building heuristics to catch bad predictions without knowing what the true labels were. That was really interesting because it helped us expose a lot of data quality issues and a lot of ways where the model was misbehaving that we originally hadn't thought of. And then I I worked on designing other kinds of metrics to help us find out not just how the model is performing, but what impact that that has on the final reports that the BLS produces. It was a really awesome experience for me with some of like the most challenging and rewarding technical work that I've done in my short career. Everyone at the BLS was really clear about how what I was working on ties to the mission it was really easy to, to speak up on the team. Like my manager and my teammates were extremely supportive. They put a lot of trust in me for just like a recent college grad who was only gonna be there for 10 weeks. They really made me feel part of the team. They trusted my input and they, they gave me the freedom to, to do things my own way when I wanted to. I got paid for doing this. I got to live in DC with all the other fellows, make tons of, of new friends go to lots of events and and learn more about civic tech. And that was honestly one of the best summers of my life. And it was just really exciting because even like as an early career person, I've, I've done some of this work where we see the difference between how AI and machine learning models are exalted and the actual dangers and drawbacks of using them. I'm horrified by what Google is doing to Dr. Gabru and the ethical AI team. Whose, whose work has benefited me 
has made communities safer, has raised the profile for students and other young people to be knowledgeable about these issues and to try and address them and to, to find the stakeholders in the communities that are affected by our work and listen to them, all of that makes us better civic technologists. And Google is destroying that. You know, I had worked on some like natural language processing work at IIT, but it's not really my area of expertise. I did more management roles there. I did code some models, but I was like, I, 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 don't, I don't exactly know what I'm doing here. That's why I had a great team to help me out and fill in the knowledge gaps that I didn't have. But when you talk through like how to improve the models that you are using and like the processes that need to be taken to do that, it was like you, you were taking methods that we had learned in classes and um, finding innovative ways to actually apply those models because yeah, they were computationally expensive to try to like find interactions in linear models and, and compute all of those for final training. So I was like, because what was it? It was like eight, you reduce the computational time like to, for interaction effects by, from like 18 hours to like 10 minutes or something ridiculous like that. So I was, it was super impressive, but it opened my eyes to just what I could possibly do with the knowledge I had. And it really inspired me to apply for this uh, Civic Digital Fellowship. We never really discussed how you got into the Civic space. So you kind of touched it with Chai Hack Nights, but also you did some interesting research work uh, with Dr. Shapiro and Dr. Bilgich at IIT, the Department of Public Health Data in Chicago. Can you describe that work for us? Yeah. And this was actually another opportunity that came through Chai Hack Night. So when I, when I was a student at IIT and going to Chai Hack Night, one of the presentations that actually happened bef even before I was a college student, and I, I had to watch it on YouTube later, was a presentation from the City of Chicago Department of Public Health about how they built a machine learning model to optimize their food inspections process. And the goal of this machine learning model was to identify supposedly higher risk restaurants and investigate them earlier in, a, in an inspection cycle to try and catch public health issues. And so my senior year at IIT, I approached two of my professors, Dr. Bilgish in machine learning and Dr. Shapiro in public policy. And I wanted to ask them if they would advise me to, to do the first public audit of this model. So the model was already open source, which is one of the great things about the city of Chicago's culture is open data, open source software. Um, even the broader Cook County is doing an incredible job in this area. Uh, like recently at Chai Hack Night, the Cook County Assessor's Office came back and gave a presentation about open sourcing their property assessment model and all of the process needed to build that data and make those predictions. It's a really huge level of transparency but it doesn't just stop with open sourcing the data and open sourcing the model. Then researchers, students, professionals, policymakers need to actually dig into it and, and find out. It's not just enough to, to open it up. And so luckily my professors were interested in this and were willing to support me in doing that work. So I got to spend a whole semester like pulling down the open source code written by the, the city of Chicago's data scientists, trying to reproduce their results analyzing the properties of the model, trying to build alternative models, 
as well as doing deep dive into the literature on public health and trying to understand more about the, the social implications of having this sort of model. We finally wrote a paper that we shared with the city and we got to present to a data scientist and another member of the city's department of, of uh, innovation and public health so that they could get feedback from us. It was a, it was a really cool project to work on because we, we dug into a lot of ethical technology issues. For example, we worried deeply about feedback loops where some restaurants might be marked as higher risk and as a result, then be investigated more earlier, finding results that then increases their risk profile even more. And there's legitimate reason to worry about this because the, the prior literature in the field finds that the, the public perceives, say, Asian restaurants and Mexican restaurants to be greater purveyors of foodborne illness far more than, than actually is, is received. Um, and so knowing that those biases and issues have already been called out, it's now incumbent on us who are working on these technologies today to, to think about ways to address and mitigate that. The city of Chicago already had a strategy for, for mitigating that, which is the, the model doesn't decide whether a restaurant will be inspected or not. It just moves up the date of the inspection. So every, every restaurant will be inspected. Based on the kind of restaurant, they should be inspected multiple times a year, once a year, or once every two, two years. So from a policy perspective, they're putting in mitigations. And, and that was an important thing for me to learn was that like the mitigation doesn't have to and sometimes can't come from the model. It has to come from the policy or from the operational organization. The department also went to great lengths to, to do this as a relatively scientific experiment. Like none of the food inspectors knew that this model was being developed when they were doing um, the inspections. And so that was necessary to avoid the kind of Hawthorne bias that you can have when the, the people who are, are involved in the outcomes, they shouldn't know that, that there's some experiment running. But we also found pl places where we wanted to raise constructive criticisms. For example, the, the paper that the city released, it's kind of like a report, it wasn't like peer reviewed, that underpins the results of the model, the model had not been deployed. What they did was they, they took results of inspections uh, from when uh, the city was inspecting restaurants, and then they did like a post facto counterfactual of like, what order would we have visited these restaurants in if we had been using the model? So they didn't actually at that point deploy the model. And so my professors and I were really curious. We're like, hmm, this, isn't actually, this doesn't actually prove that, that the model is effective, but the city based on these results chose to start deploying the model. And so then we try to do kind of like a natural experiment, which is, okay, now that we know that the model has deployed, let's look at the, the differences in inspection results from before when the model wasn't being used and now when it has been used. And, and let's do our best to like settle the confounding factors. And we encountered numerous factors. Two years ago, the city changed the definition of the, the high priority food codes, which was definitely a factor that affected our research and our ability to understand, hey, what has been the effect of this machine learning model? And digging into a lot of those things was, was really interesting. It was tough because it raised methodological questions about what the city was doing. It, it raised questions about whether we are actually improving the public health, whether we are treating restaurants and restaurant owners equitably. And to their credit, the city never shies away from these things. They engage with these questions. They certainly did not like gaslight us and tell us that we were finding things that we, we were imagining these things or um, they, they didn't 
they didn't do anything to jeopardize my, my professors or me as a student working on those things. In fact, they were, were very supportive and interesting. But, but they can't always tell us what changes they're going to make because of that. And it's, it's interesting because like as far as the, the, the transparent project, the food inspections goes, they can't, like we can see what changes the city is going to make as a result of our research and as a result of other problems that they found. But something that one of the data scientists who has been a really great mentor to me and has worked on a number of projects for the city of Chicago, this idea he was trying to impress on me was, it's really important that you're giving us critical feedback because even if that feedback might not be serious enough for us to take action on this project, there's other projects that we're working on that we can't make public. And what you're telling us might actually be helping us identify a problem there or identify action that we can take there. And I can't tell you because it's, it's data that's confidential that like we as a, as a government agency have a responsible ability to protect. But by you like asking these questions and by you and your professors holding us accountable, it's benefiting us not just in this project, but across all of the ways that data and machine learning are augmenting city services. So that's, that's also like the culture that I was raised in, like as a student was like people who have power over me and my community, data scientists working for a city government agency are trying their best to be transparent, are being receptive to constructive criticisms and are taking action even when nobody is asking them to do or when, other, when the public may not know. Again, completely antithetical to what Google is choosing to do. I'm really lucky that I had professors that supported me, that I live in a city where technologists and government are trying to correct for the harms that government agencies might cause. It's because of that culture and way of doing things that the environment that Google has created is unpalatable. And I don't know if I would have recognized that if I hadn't been lucky to be in these environments like Chai Hack Night, the research that I got to do with my professors in the city of Chicago, the way that Coding It Forward enabled us to work with the BLS and other agencies. But it's like, after you've seen the real thing, which is people that are, are working to listen to concerns about technology, you can't go back to the, the half-baked gaslit version that Google is offering. Vinesh, do you have any advice for younger people, college students, early career professionals, people looking to get into civic technology or just trying to find a full-time job? I hope this is not a dodge to your question, but I almost want to flip it and ask what organizations that are hiring should be doing. Because I see so many of our classmates doing so much already to try and line themselves up for career and professional development. And especially since we're talking about the way that April Curley was mistreated and pushed out that should be top of mind as well. Like some of the most important things that she achieved was one challenging Google's racist and exclusive ideas of who gets to be an engineer and who has technical skills. Two, standing up for the dignity of students, giving them a safe experience, empowering them through the process. Three, making process and policy changes, whether it's where you source your candidates from, what you put on the job description, how you interview them, what rubrics and scoring you use, how much budget you put into different areas, what commitments there are to hold leadership accountable. All of these things have to change if companies are serious about giving a safe environment to students and young career people 
and creating an environment where civic technology can take roots. A lot of us who are like young and early career might not think that there's a lot that we can do to make a difference on these, uh, but there, there's still a lot, right? Like we can, we can, we may know even better than recruiters or hiring managers, which organizations are doing great work as far as providing safe spaces and professional development for students. Like Evan and I at IIT, like we know about the work that NSB, the National Society for Black Engineers, the Society for Hispanic Professional Engineers, the ACMW, the Women in Cybersecurity Club, the, the new uh, SORE-MO, which I forget what it's like, socially responsible mathematical modeling. Like there's so many organizations that we're plugged into. And then there are organizations across the country. Like there's nonprofits like ColorStack and um, social benefit corporations like Major League Hacking that are continually creating spaces where students can show off their strengths. And by plugging into those organizations, we can reach more of the students who are very, very qualified to work in these roles and are being overlooked uh, and being pushed out by different processes. Then there's the piece of like, we have to examine whether a company is actually, or whether a company or organization is actually a safe space for, for students and people to come into. And so you may not have control over the hiring process, but you can you can push if you feel safe, you can give feedback to more senior members of your team or your manager about things that you are worried about that imagine like, oh, if I had a friend who worked here or what I heard about the way someone else in the company was mistreated and remind your managers and your senior people that you need them to take visible action and speak up about those things. Otherwise they're, they're letting a, a bad environment fester under the surface. And then there's other things that we can do, which is like we can promote and we can show off the work that our classmates and our friends are doing, especially when it challenges the ideas that coworkers might have about what makes a good engineer or data scientist. Ajay was pointing out earlier that there's this tendency to like over-focus on internships at fan companies. And Evan, you were kind of remarking, you're like, well, I don't do that much technically, but I know both of you, the work that you've done in classes, outside of class, in organizations like Coding It Forward and other spaces, all of those are, are proof and evidence that you're a great researcher, or a great engineer. And then there's lots of students who that's not being right. Like they did something great in a class and the recruiter at a company has a rule that says, don't consider class stuff. Those are things that we can break down. Those are things where we can challenge our coworkers and our organizations to better understand the strengths of students. And unfortunately, a lot of hiring processes are designed to the opposite effect. This is something that April said that really stuck with me was that like these processes are designed to root out deficiencies, to get you to make a mistake in a coding screen or a technical interview or a culture interview that can be used to justify why we're not hiring that person. And that doesn't make the system meritocratic or even a valid assessment of someone's skills. It's, it's purely an instrument of the fact that there's a limited number of roles that you can hire for and a massive number of students who are absolutely deserving of, of getting that opportunity. And a company needs a way to justify cutting, cutting them off. And then it was, it was Devin Guillory, the PhD student at Berkeley who wrote his, his paper last summer, his essay about anti-Blackness in the AI community, where he pointed out many of the barriers to entry for talented students, whether it's you know, financial or 
the, the lack of people that are willing to refer them or the processes and the policies that companies use. And he said very succinctly, there's no scientific way to predict someone's potential. And so a lot of students who want to work in civic technology, there's no way that we can know whether one has more or less potential. And if you lean on that as an excuse, you're choosing to value one kind of student over another student, and that may not be a good thing. The truth is like, if they meet the qualifications to do the work, when they come to the organization and we start investing in them, we have to invest in students, no matter how much skill they have already. We'll always have to train them and teach them and things about our organization. And that, that leads to growth. And so hiring, and I think a lot of, I think a lot of people in the industry like, don't, don't think this way. Hiring is not the way to decide who's the most qualified for the role. It's deciding who we're going to invest in and who is going to get this opportunity to grow and like unlock their potential. And then in the industry, there's this concept of bad hires, which has been twisted to mean a lot of different things. Like legitimately, there are bad hires where you hire someone and they have a toxic impact on the organization. They make customers and partners and teammates feel unsafe. They do destructive work. But that idea from HR culture about a bad hire has been twisted to mean, oh, what if we lowered our bar and we let in students who don't meet the qualifications? Those are not the same thing. And the way that that belief has been passed on, that that makes people feel like they have to prove themselves what they, once they join the organization. And if things don't go well, an observation that I've had that we can unpack more is when a hire goes bad, like they failed, it's rarely because of their lack of qualifications or their lack of hard work. It's very frequently because the company did not provide them a good environment. In her work, April tried to highlight and address and work against all of these factors and not only has not been rewarded for it, but has been like continually mistreated, pushed out and smeared by Google. And that's a sign that Google is not willing to do the hard work of making a good environment, that they'll leave it entirely up to chance. And there are definitely going to be teams where there are some safe environments because the, that team is putting in the work to do this. But leaving it to chance is not something that we can afford if we want more people to come into civic tech and have a good experience. And so for all of us that are not Google, we need to try and improve that environment, make these process changes, put our money where our mouth is, support candidates, and break down myths of meritocracy and failed employees, and stop negotiating people's qualifications when the conversation is really about who are we going to invest in. You know, Vinesh, I really thought it was interesting what you had brought up just now about when an employee fails at a company like Google, it's not because of their qualifications, it's because of the environment that was built around them. And that's what I felt at Facebook too. If you look at what my boss was, you know, writing up about me in the midterm review process and the final review process, it would seem like as if I'm a bad data engineer. But that is obviously refuted by the work that I did when I was an intern at JP Morgan, by when I worked at the Department of Health and Human Services, by when I worked at a statewide political party, the reason why I failed at Facebook was because of the environment. I was in an environment where I was not allowed to ask questions, where teammates would get upset at me if I even took out my notebook to write down notes so I could understand the concept better. Literally everything from my boss telling me that, oh, this code looks good, we can go ahead and push it later today. And when he come back around at 5 p.m. and give me 500 things to fix with the code. And then when I eventually got annoyed at 
week 10 that I had to constantly go back and fix things that he would tell me at the last second. And as a result, I had nothing to show for my internship. He ended up writing me off as a guy who refused to edit code, which is completely stupid because you cannot be a good software engineer in a civic tech space or in a political tech space if you just refuse to edit your code. And to be honest, when he said that, I felt really gaslit. In the final review meeting, when it was me and him, he had first said, Jay, I don't think you're a person who likes to edit his code, even though he knew that was completely wrong. I had been spending 11 to 12 hours a day for the past couple weeks at that point, trying to exemplify that I was a good data engineer. And that involved a lot of editing, involved a lot of talking with my manager about what were the best ways to come up and design something. And here he was sitting in a meeting telling me, you aren't a person who likes to edit code. And I was so frustrated because then he continued on to gaslight me. And he said, Ajay, don't think you're a person who can't code. You can code. And I was so annoyed because I was like, why are you telling me this? I obviously know that I can code. I did a decent job at this internship. And the problem was that, you know, there were things that I did wrong and I could have done better in the internship. I'll completely admit to that. But... I felt that he wasn't taking responsibility for some of the actions that he did as manager. And I knew at that point that I didn't want to come back to Facebook, even before getting the official decline. But I was hoping that he would have at least taken some responsibility and would have been like, you know what, Ajay, I could have done a better job as a manager too, and I'm sorry that I didn't support you in the way that I did. And the fact is that people knew that he wasn't a good manager. There was a person on my team during the last week who had asked me, Ajay, how did you feel about, you know, working with your intern manager? And I told him, you know, eh, it was pretty good. And then he asked me, Ajay, how do you really feel? And at that point, I was like, why are you asking me how I really feel? And he went into this whole rant about how he had been working with my intern manager before I'd gotten to Facebook. And he was really concerned about my intern manager's manager style. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, okay, so my concerns maybe are actually right. And then I talked to the data engineering internship program heads, and they had explained which I'll explain more in depth in a second, that they didn't even like the project that my boss gave me. And they were completely understanding as to why I was really upset as to how the summer went and how bad my manager had treated me and had gaslighted me. The bosses like my intern manager and like Jeff Dean try to shift blame from themselves onto their subordinates in this way. And I think it's something that is extremely frustrating that they don't like to showcase themselves as poor managers, but rather it's someone else's problem, somebody else though. It's their lack of qualification when it's actually not the case. Yeah. And it's an incredibly harmful form of gaslighting. It is. And I was given an intern project. I kind of described this earlier. That was based in PHP. And the data engineering internship heads had told my boss, you know, we probably shouldn't be giving this to an intern. There's not even that many data engineers that interact with PHP. And my boss was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this project. And, you know, everyone backed off and, when, I, when he had reached out to me in April, a month before the internship started, he had sent an email to me and said, your project is going to be in PHP and doing data engineering on the web end. And I was a little surprised because that wasn't in the job requirements at all. And I was already going in blind. I had assumed that the position was in Python and in SQL. And all of a sudden, I'm working with a programming language and a framework that I had no experience in. My boss knew that at week four, the project was a failure, that there weren't any data engineers that could solve the problem that even I was solving. And I was just an intern. It took him four weeks to even come up with another project for me. And by that time, I had less than two weeks to showcase my skill sets instead of 10 weeks as a Facebook data engineer. And obviously, anyone operating under those circumstances where you were expected to work just for two weeks 
11 to 12 hours a day, including weekends to showcase your a worthy data engineer and a worthy employee at a company like Facebook or Google is going to fail. And that didn't matter to my boss because the best case scenario is if I succeeded as an intern, my boss would have been promoted to the next position. If I failed as an intern, he would have been fine. He wouldn't have lost his job. It was the intern who was going to get fired. And that's why these people, you know, they kind of live in this castle of privilege. Jeff Dean and my intern manager live in this castle of privilege because they're not the ones who's actions are going to get them fired. They're the ones who are shielded from any criticism whatsoever. It's their inferiors that get fired. It's an interesting point, definitely about failure to shield and protect your direct reports, which I think is the responsibility of a manager. But then actually like a lot of executives have the expectation that they'll, that they'll be fired. That it's like an upper out. Um, this is something that I learned recently from a mentor is that a lot of executives, when they accept an offer, they already at that time negotiate their severance package because the idea is like they're being brought in to achieve some objectives for the company. And if those objectives aren't achieved, the blame lies squarely on the executive. Whether it was something the team did or not, that like you have to have accountability for the executive. And so they're creating a severance package. They're negotiating one that says like, if things go wrong, whether they're my fault or not, this is the payout that I expect because I'm, I'm taking a risk to, to be an executive at this company versus other opportunities that I, I could have taken. And I might be punished for things that weren't my fault. Capitalism already has its way of accounting for the fact that bad leadership needs to be held accountable, but the incentives can be very easily twisted. When, you know, when, when that exec is out because they didn't achieve the milestones that they hoped to hit, some people kind of give crocodile tears where they're like, oh, this poor executive, like they tried their best, but people in the organization didn't do the work or better yet, people in the organization were activists about, you know, not doing something that would be, have been harmful. And it's because of those people that this executive is losing their job and this company is not meeting its deadlines. Like, don't cry for them. They're more than likely getting a very good severance package on their terms that they negotiated when they took the job. And so in a lot of cases, especially in tech, there's not enough accountability for, for executives' failures. And when you think about it, like what are those expectations that the executive is brought in for that, that the board or the CEO is saying, if you don't achieve these, we're going to fire you? And do they include stuff like this? <laughs> do, they, do they include traumatizing a, a, a team that does ethical research on your team, protecting marginalized employees, ensuring the socially responsible impact of your technologies? They don't, but they should because that, that's, the, that's the mechanism that's built in. That's the only mechanism for, for accountability for the executive. And the absence of clauses that touch on these issues is a direct indication that neither the executive nor the company cares about those enough to be held responsible for not achieving them. Knowing that, you should also look critically at what Jeff Dean is saying now, that they've concluded their investigation into how, uh, what happened with Dr. Gibru, and now that they're going to tie executives and VPs results to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not only is that laughably hypocritical after what they've done to Dr. Gibru, April, and so many others on the ethical AI team, but then show us what is that agreement? How is it measured? 
what is the accountability for it? And it's also a challenging thing because like if, if the only measure of accountability is fired, then the executive and people who support them have every incentive to delay that high stakes outcome. And so if there aren't smaller, earlier consequences, you're going to let that executive go right up to the line or past it before you even start having the conversation of should we fire this person and move on. And so that, that, that's why, like, in addition to the hypocrisy, that's why I'm very skeptical reading the way that Google hopes to tie those outcomes. And they've had a long time to make those changes. And choosing not to means protecting the, the egos and the compensation of executives over the cost and the harm to employees and the impact of this technology on our users and other people that are affected. Yeah. And honestly, I think we're really beginning to see this just in the social media space and also in, you know, various publications like Bloomberg and MIT Technology Review. But we're seeing that Google continues to minimize and disregard its ethical AI team and any team that speaks out against its mission or just shows that there are risks to the mission that Google is trying to accomplish. And, you know, one of the things that Google's actions remind me of is from this book that my wonderful friend Brett recommended to me, and it's called Bush by Gene Edward Smith. Obviously, as you can tell, the book is about the George W. Bush administration. And one of the recurring themes that comes up is that if you ever question the president's mission as a member of the Bush administration, your voice would often be minimized. So one of the things that kept coming up was that you know, George W. Bush wanted to invade Iraq. And if you were in, in the administration and you wanted to not invade Iraq, if you thought that invading Iraq was premature, your voice would be minimized. And rather, the president was surrounded by a bunch of people who, you know, either would tell him what he wanted to hear or wholeheartedly believed him. And Google is going as far as to telling the media that the company like restructured its artificial intelligence teams before telling the ethical artificial intelligence team that they did that. And as Professor Mar Hicks of both your alma mater and Evan's alma mater, Illinois Institute of Technology, stated, uh, she stated this tweet that it appears the company is slashing and burning the rest of the ethical AI team. So it is no longer a force for ethical artificial intelligence in the corporation, the corporation obviously being Google. And an additional statement that she had also tweeted out that I thought was really intriguing was that there is this manager at Google who stated that technology is not a democracy. And I think that kind of just demonstrates the viewpoint of big tech companies in Silicon Valley and how they regard the government. Because the problem is, is that Silicon Valley can think it's separate from DC all at once, that it's the West Coast is the best coast and the East Coast is the least coast. But the problem is, is that Google and Facebook are so ingrained in the American culture and what kind of information Americans receive that they cannot be as far away as they want to be from the American government. I, I remember when I was at Facebook, there was a huge fine. I think that was the only time I had ever seen a single person at Facebook not do any work. And everyone was just in different meeting rooms or in the room Mark Zuckerberg himself, just watching about what Zuckerberg's internal comments were regarding the, the fines from the FTC. There was so much anti-government sentiment in the building at that time. Like, oh, the government's, you know, intruding on our mission. Well, the problem is that, you know what? Both sides need to be, need to hold each other responsible. Obviously, like me and Evan are both super proud that 
people like Mar Hicks are, are at our institution. And I'm sure there's more that IIT can do to support professors and researchers like that. But that's, that's also, that's part of the culture that we're raised in. Like we have lots of, lots of professors who are vocal about these issues, who are, are doing research on this, who are creating opportunities for students and uh, are supporting us if we make decisions that are contrary to the status quo. There's no shortage of animosity between technology companies and the government. And it's really tough. Like I, something that was nice was like when I was at Google, like, and uh, there was the congressional hearing about antitrust matters with big tech companies. One of my senior engineers like took time to watch the live stream with me and like talk about it and answer questions to have a really good discussion. That was actually a really meaningful experience because as a civic technologist, like I'm deeply torn, right? Like I am concerned with abuses of power by both technology companies and by government. And to see the person at that time who was my CEO, Sundar Pichai, kind of on the, on the virtual stand and receive like hateful and non sequitur questions that neither help focus the public debate on the harms of Google's power and technology, nor reflect well on the Congress people who asked those questions. That's pretty unsettling. I absolutely don't want to sound like I'm being defensive of either Google or the government. Both of these extremely powerful institutions affect our lives, whether we have a say in it or not. And so we need better information and we need more direct action to assess those. As a young civic technologist, like we have to wrestle with how we're going to do that in a bunch of different ways, whether it's using our voice for activism, working internally in the organizations that we're part of, trying to contribute to efforts to create new policy, trying to change the culture within our teams if we can. All of that is, is really challenging. And it's really hard to have an honest conversation about it because of how much like political and financial power hangs in the balance. As civic technologists, we're caught on both sides where we, we see the mission-driven focus of public servants that we worked with in contrast to vile, hateful, and ignorant elected officials. And then on the technology side, on the Silicon Valley side, we see the promise of technology to improve lots of systems that will help lots of people that we're supposed to serve with the way that executives and engineers and others are ignoring and gaslighting the harms of those technologies and attacking and traumatizing the people that are working to affect them. So there's always cognitive dissonance as a civic technologist. You deal with the good and the evil of tech and the good and the evil of, of government. Professor Hicks and many others in our community that are, are helping teach us about the history of technology and government, there's a lot of people working really hard for us to unpack those cognitive dissonances and determine what's the best way for us individually and for us in the institutions that we're part of, whether they're workplaces or like government and our society to move forward in a way that will serve all of the people that we're supposed to serve, especially people that have been marginalized. Anesh, thank you so thank much you for coming to talk to us today. This is yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And I really appreciate your support. And I know you'll hold me accountable.
thanks y'all for listening to our fifth episode of Civ Tech Talks. Once again, special thanks to our guest, Finesh, for being on the podcast this week. We will be recording more segments in the next few weeks, so please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Please give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Civ Tech Talks. If you're interested in civic tech opportunities, please consider joining Impactful. You can find more information at weareimpactful.org. Thanks, everyone.